0: This is Oliver Taplin in discussion with Lorna Hardwick on the subject of translation. And we're going on to our second topic, which is fidelity. Is there such a thing, we're asking, is there such a thing as a faithful translation?
1: Well, I suppose my question to that would be faithful to what? Do we mean by faithful the lexical arrangement of the words? Or a faithful reproduction of the forms that are used, for example, in the poetic language of the choral odes in Greek tragedy, or perhaps the rather homely images that you find in some of the similes in Homer, or by faithful do we mean something more complex? The dynamics, the way in which a literary text contends with its predecessors, or how it mattered to the people who first read it or, or saw it performed in the theatre how it affected the readers are there equivalences and correspondences there that are worth pursuing
0: yes well that certainly complicates the question it looked like a simple one to start with at the same time the notion of the faithful translation i find it has an extraordinary grip on people people seem to they think they know what it means there is an extraordinary power uh, of the idea of a literal a literal It's sometimes called a literal, isn't it? A a crib. Now, obviously, those are useful for students. But uh, not only students. I mean, I've I've come across several creative artists who, as is almost inevitable, they don't know the source language of the original. I mean, Ted Hughes, I think, translated poems from 14 different languages, and I think he knew one of them. But in my experience, what translators do when they don't know the original language is they ask for, or have made, or find... A close translation and they they launch off from that and it does make me wonder if what they value is really the closeness or is it i would like to ask is it just the plainness you know quite often these very literal translations that you will get in a in in a penguin or in a lower uh, classical library or something they actually say in the introduction this translation has no pretensions to be to literary merit where i always feel like saying you can say that again But I think, actually, there are ways in which a literal translation of crib can actually distort, even do violence to the original. I always remember William Cooper, who translated Homer, not a very uh, famous or successful translation of Homer, but he actually said, I've got the quotation here, if we copy too closely, instead of translating, we murder him. So a close copy is a kind of murder. For example, I mean, if you translate every single word, you will end up with too many words. In Greek there are these little words called, uh, which are known as particles, which actually are really tonal, and yet literal translations spell them out. They spell out this one tiny little word like g, and they translate it as in a manner of speaking, or to emphasise my point. And that's a kind of unfaithfulness in the literal translation. Sticking to the word order of another language taken over into the target language can be misleading. But above all, what I, my my grouse about... Cripps about literal translations is that it will always go for the plain word, the pedestrian word, the colourless word. Now that of course is what the modern creative translator likes about them because it gives the modern creative translation an opportunity to colour. But it's unfaithful when translating poetry to translate poetic language with plain pedestrian colourless words. The problem is that if in English you then go for colour to translate colour then the translation's the translator's intervention becomes inevitably visible. Instead of, so to speak, there being a transparency, a pedestrian transparency, instead you get a creative colour. The translator's role is then more overt. But I don't think the overtness of the translator's role is the same thing as being less faithful.
1: I think there's a number of really important points there. I just want to pick out two, I think... The first one I want to pick out is that I think the idea of a close translation is worth, you know, breaking down even a bit more. Because what seems to be emerging from our discussion is that the so-called close translation is actually an intervening step on the way to producing a translation which purports to be faithful to the spirit of the work as as well as to the letter of it. And, I mean, if you look at the different kinds of close translations there are, I mean, I suppose the absolute basic one is what um, used to be called the interlinear translation, in which the Greek or Latin text was laid out and then beneath it was an English version which actually reflected the word order and the parts of speech, which was hardly readable as English, but did actually show how the language fitted together. I mean, in the 19th mm-hmm. century, a lot of those were produced as the ultimate cribs. I think I'm right in um, saying
0: that some of the Anglo-Saxon texts that we have are actually interlinear cribs on Latin. Yes, yes yeah. in-
1: in- indeed. And in a way, I think apart from being providing quite an interesting window into the history of how people got to grips with, with Greek and, and, and Latin material, They do enable the reader to see how the word order works, how in rich languages where a lot of images and ideas are compressed together, they actually help you to get an idea of the density of the language. But of course nobody would actually present them as a translation to be read, but they're part of the way that actually helps you into seeing how the language works. Other kinds of, of, of close translation which are produced to be read in the language in which they're being translated and which, to pick up Cicero's idea, are trying to give the impression that the ancient text was written in the language in which it is now being read. And there the the great challenge is how to communicate the density of, of the source language in a way that actually accords with the idiom and the flow and the rhythm and the sound of, uh, in this case, the English language, whether it's in poetry or in prose, and and that's obviously another translator's decision, I think. And one of the things that quite often seems to happen is that the more accessible a translation is deemed to be, the more bland it is, because Mm. the translator has had to make decisions not just about the interpretation of the Greek or Latin text, but also Decisions about the kind of English that is going to be in tune with the imagined readership.
0: Yes,
1: and that's an important thing. I think who you're actually translating for, who who's going to read it, who in commercial terms perhaps is going to buy it.
0: Mm. And I think something else. I mean, you, you talked about the density of the language. I th- an- another way of coming at a closely related thing is to talk about the register or the the level of diction, um, particularly when translating what um, used to be called, I don't think we use it so, so much, thank goodness, any longer, high poetry. High poetry should be translated into high poetry. But actually, to pin down level, to pin down register, is a very complicated and interesting business. And I've been very struck, because in translating Greek tragedy myself, I've had to think about this a lot, and I saw a recent review of a translation which certainly struck home with me because it impinges very much on what I do. Because it said this review, sir, so objected to a, this new translation because it elided syllables. It said "its" for "it is." It says "aren't" for "are not" or "I'd" for "I would," and this review claimed that that was below the level of the diction of, of Greek tragedy. Now, my practice certainly doesn't agree with that at all. There are places certainly where you want to say it is and not is, but that will be in a context which is particularly formal, like if somebody's making a speech of an edict or something. Sometimes for the sake of pace, perhaps for the sake of bringing out a character, it would be right and it is would not be right. But this kind of choice where on the whole you choose, I choose, what is suiting my rhythm, suiting my music, suiting my metre, there's a lot of precedent for that. Think how, in earlier English poetry, so-called high poetry, you could use ever or you could use ear. You could use a two-syllable word or a one-syllable word to suit you. I was reading Keats recently and noticed how Keats completely interchangeably does or does not sound ed at the end of a word. So much of I travelled in the realms of gold in the translating Homer poem, but in other places he would say travelled when it suits him. He would say travelled. They're completely interchangeable. So. In my view, I don't think we have any authority to say that certain rules of language do obey a register and certain rules of of language or certain, uh, certain lexicon of words do not obey a register. We don't have an academy to lay these things down. Ultimately, it comes down to a matter of literary and poetic judgment. It ultimately comes down to a matter both in the writer, both in the translator and in the readership or audience for the translation of the feel of the language one cannot there's no getting away from the feel of the language I think.
1: I wonder if that's one reason too why there always seems to be felt a need for new translations of these key texts you know the what the average impact life of a translation would be not more than a generation, it may then become of literary or, or, or historical interest, but new ones are coming along. And I wonder if that has to do with the fact that in tragedy, for instance, in Greek tragedy, the different registers, the different kinds and levels of language that are coming together in the play, may not find an exact equivalence in English as it is commonly read or spoken at a particular time. Yeah. And that raised very interesting questions because the language, you know, in terms of the fifth century BCE, when Mm -hmm. tragedies were being performed for the first time, the language in which they were being spoken or particularly sung was not the idiom of everyday use of Mm -hmm. the ancient Athenians, insofar as we can know about that. So you've got immediately a kind of a distancing. And when you translate that distancing, into the, a new translation. A faithful translation, it seems to me, has got to communicate something of that variety of, of language, the idiom that is used in particular contexts within the play, how that relates to each other. And also, perhaps, if the dynamics of impact on, on the spectators or the readers are being, are being taken seriously, how the new readers, the new spectators, would actually relate that to their linguistic expectations, mm-hmm. you know, the norms and conventions of, of, of their own lives. And that's going to change yeah, I mean, so even, even quite in, rapidly in a period of 20 years. Even
0: in the time span of the, of the great tragedies of the East Sophocles and Euclides, certain words are floating in and out of being more or less colloquial, more or less archaic. And in English, uh, an extraordinary example I uh, came across just recently, about two or three years ago, I translated a phrase in play of Sophocles about birds using the word Twitter. And since then, the word Twitter has actually become uh, impossible to use in the translation of Sophocles.
1: So it seems to me that what we're arriving at, really, is a sense of how a faithful translation has to involve some kind of negotiation. It's... A negotiation between the translator and the ancient text, which may be a direct negotiation if the translator is very well versed in the ancient language, or it may be mediated if the translator is primarily a literary or dramatic figure who is taking scholarly advice or, or using, you know, close translations. So that's one level of negotiation. But there's also a negotiation that goes on within the target language, the receiving language, as to how to situate those words and that, that idiom in the context of particular developments or key areas of change or challenge, how how to align it yes. within the state of language as it now is whenever the translator is is, is writing.
0: Mm-hmm. So I, I'm inclined to think you probably need a new translation every six months rather than every sixty years. Though at the same time as we see, some translations outlast, far outlast their own time, because in some sense they, they stand on their own feet.
1: And isn't that almost always because they have acquired um, some kind of literary merit and coherence and dynamic of their own? I mean, it's very interesting what you were saying just now about the status of the translator, mm. and whether the translator is perceived as somebody who is visible, in terms not only of interpreting in a particular way, but also stylistically. Now, until quite recently, there used to be a sort of convention that the translator, unless a major literary figure, you know, you're you're Dryden or, or Pope, but unless that was the case, the translator was supposed to be invisible to, in some sense, be sufficiently learned to get at the fixed meaning of the ancient text and to be able to communicate that in a relatively non-controversial way. Your humble
0: translator. Your humble,
1: your humble translator, who is yeah. barely even acknowledged, you know, sometimes. Yeah. And recent work in, in translation research and scholarship has very much turned attention away from that and much more towards what Lawrence Venuti has called the visibility rather than the invisibility of, of the translator. And everybody has become much more conscious of not only the translator's role, you know who commissions the translation, the purpose for which it's done, and so on, but also of the way in which the translator approaches the task. I mean, there are quite interesting archives of, of interviews about that. Many translators, including those of, of Greek and Latin material, now it, now include um, you know, a translator's introduction in addition to the, the scholarly introduction by the editor of, of the text. Yeah. So this is seen much more as an integral part of the making of the perception of Greek drama or Homer or Virgil. And I think this is especially
0: day. true of translation of poetry, which is where we're going to go next.